What's up, long players? Welcome to the Long Play Listening Party, the show where we go deep on local music, writing, recording, inspiration, gear, whatever else sounds good to us. I'm Howie Howard from Mr. Furious Records. Trying something new. We have a guest host this week, Rob Spector from the Arturo Got the Shaft, a Life Without Fireflies episode, is here to uh, to mostly take over hosting duties. Rob, how's it going? Howie, I am doing great. Uh... How are how are you doing? Are you currently frozen to death? Are you are you hiding for warmth inside a, a sliced open tauntaun right now? Two weeks ago, yes. <laughs> Today was beautiful in Kansas. What do you mean beautiful? I had the I had the doors open in the middle of the day. Uh, it was very nice in Kansas today. Wow, you went from like Alaska to Margaritaville in a week. It's Midwest, baby. <sighs> hey, climate change. This is all good. <laughs> Whistling past the graveyard. Well, we have a uh, guest artist as usual this week. It's Corey Kibler from the band Shacker, a early mid two thousands Nebraska Lincoln Crete area band to talk about uh, Shacker's first record. Pardon my pretension, but isn't it Blackbeard's birthday? What's <laughs> up, Corey? Oh man, I'm thrilled to be here. Man, I just really got the full irony of that title just now. Like <laughs> it's now. so it's so pretentious. That's <laughs> uh, great. Okay, we just went meta right from the start. I, full disclosure: uh, I'm in this band. I play drums in this band. Corey wrote the songs, played guitar, sang sang the songs. Uh, Going to try and keep the conversation mostly between Rob and Corey. But the events sort of is um, this record has never been online before. Uh, I've remastered it. It was never mastered either. <laughs> I've remastered it. It's going to be on Bandcamp and all the major streaming platforms, along with Shacker's other other two records. Uh, so we're bringing the whole Shacker discography into the modern age. Well, that is, that is super exciting. Are we hearing the mastered version? You're today? hearing the mastered slash remastered, oh, wow. remastered version. Yeah, I, I was listening to the MP3s I ripped off the record while I was in college uh, all week in preparation for the show. So I'm very excited to hear the different sound. You got uh, that vintage bit rot. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I, I, as, we're, as we're getting ready to dive into the record, uh, Corey, I, I am so excited to talk to you about this record, uh, mostly because I don't think we ever got the opportunity. Um, you all put this out like right when I was graduating, so we never really got to sit down and have a heart-to-heart about this record, but um, I am a genuine fan and really, uh, really adore the songwriting in particular on this record. But um, one of the things I'd like to capture as we're leading up to actually hearing the sound is uh, what I think is like a really interesting tension in in all these songs between what what I perceive at least to be some some fairly serious content and this absolutely irrepressibly joyful mischievous uh, uh antics um which, which are reflected in the album's title so every shaka record has a blackbeard gag what what is the story with uh blackbeard and shaker uh man i don't know i mean I, I i think you captured it perfectly like i am like i am an incurable goofball and i can't help it even when i try to do something cool or edgy or something i don't even try anymore but when i did it didn't work 
And I don't know why we got so stoked on Blackbeard. I think pirates were like a big thing in 2002 or 2003. Like that was just, I don't know, kind of like the, like what zombies would become or vampires later or something. Um, like the, like the ninja pirate, like online meme before memes were even a thing. Yep. That's exactly it. And so pirates to me are just like funny and cool and silly. I don't know. I think Howie and I kind of develop this like headcanon of Blackbeard actually being this like really sad bastard kind of pirate that like almost almost accomplishes his great goal but then doesn't quite get it and then dies in obscurity or something like that like I remember talking about him as a character almost and not with much plot or anything but he would just kind of come up in jokes and BS about what would Blackbeard do or can you imagine Blackbeard doing this or whatever? Right. Like, I think we definitely made him like, I didn't bother to learn anything actually real about Black Blackbeard. I remember how he sent me an article when they found some more of his stuff. But in my mind, it was just like he was just this sort of like hapless goofball who really wanted to be taken seriously, but just couldn't find the treasure or something. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I identify strongly with. Uh, the underdog. Uh, we made him into our mascot, kind we, of. I mean, he's totally kind of a reflection did. of who we, we were. totally did. Yeah, he. Uh, and it, and it's funny. We don't. We didn't look up to the real Blackbeard. We invented a character for a real person, and then made that <laughs> the mascot. We appropriated Blackbeard for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Let's let's hear this first track. So obviously, the first thing that you're greeted with with this first track, Wishful Thinking, is the wild bass tone from Tucci. Can you talk a little bit about what he was doing? Oh my god. Ron, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because this guy. Uh, so Tucci is honestly a super inventive musician. He plays the bass guitar like most people play like lead guitar or like you know how like rod argent plays synth or something like it's it's way up front and it's unique and it's never it's never like just the root notes or anything like that um and i think he would be the first to admit that he probably went a little maybe too overboard with the effects because if i recall correctly it wasn't that we had that synth effect on the bass and the regular bass it was just the just the effect and it's pretty shocking to to start a record and to hear that as the bass right away. But in retrospect, I feel like it's just part of the record's charm. It's too bad I didn't know about doing like wet dry bass things at that point in my sure. producing career. I could have I could have really put him in a better light if I'd just taken the DI track and sure. mixed it in. I, that's what I was thinking. I got, when I was listening back, I was like, I mean, listen to that. It's like, it's buck, it's buck wild, <laughs> really. And uh, this is the soloiest I ever got on uh, just about any song. Uh, and listening back, it actually doesn't sound terrible. It's like a very like kind of Nirvana solo where it's just the vocal melody with a little flourish. 
But yeah, we uh, there's a lot of things we didn't know about then, I guess. And a DI track would have been helpful to know, but uh, again, it's just part of the the time capsule of it or something, I guess. The sound is really important though because it it's the hook of the you know the intro of the song and that little break. It's really oh, the that intro bass of the record that is the hook. It totally is. It's like absolutely. hello, we're Shacker. Boom. <laughs> Big. Do you remember what some of the gear he used was? Uh, all I remember from Tucci's pedal board was I suspected that the total cost of it was less than $50. <laughs> no, it was. He had a line of five or six mostly boss pedals. This was the silver boss bass synthesizer. Uh, I'll try and look it up. It's, it's the silver one with red prints. Yeah, he was, he was the kind of dude that, that showed up to sure. every practice and every recording session with a couple new pedals that he, I don't know how in debt he got buying pedals, but he would switch it up even mid-recording a song. Um, and it's gotten even worse. He has a whole, literally a whole trailer that he attaches to a car <laughs> to take with him that's filled with effects, lights and fog, and pedal oh, uh, pedals, and it's, it's insane. Gosh, it's a it's amazing. a large trailer. It's huge. Yeah, I believe it. Uh, we're up for track two. Autumn is a design for subtle nerves. And I, I don't know. You were mentioning that you didn't have a lot of leads on this record, but I feel like the the riff here is pretty important. Yeah, um, I'm uh, when I was kind of listening to this record again uh, in preparation for this. Just I listened to it once or twice and. The last time I listened to it was probably 2014 or 15 when I found another one of the many, many boxes of, you know, stacks of old Shacker CDs in my house and I decided to throw it in my car player and, uh, it's, and it's, it's not bad. Like, I think it's a pretty cool little riff. I, I always felt like a fraud playing in bands, especially early on, because I never thought of myself as a very good guitarist. And so whenever I came up with something that sounded cool, it's almost like I, my, my stance was that I I came up with it by accident or it it sounded cooler than it actually was or something but I I want to give my 20 year old self a lot more credit for coming up with decent guitar decent guitar stuff can you talk a little bit about the rig that you had for this record you, you play a lot of clean you play a lot of crunch there, there's a lot of variety yeah so for this record I'm almost positive that I had a big great solid state amp uh, that had three settings. It was distortion, uh, chorus, and uh, clean. Uh, there wasn't any reverb on it or anything. And if I used a pedal at all, it would have been like a boss, dis- like those orange boss distortion pedals. Um, how, how I don't I remember you using any pedals. I, I only think- remember the different the two settings on the crate. Yep, I think that was about it. I mean, this was like... It, it kind of makes it a little bit more impressive, too, that the sounds turned out as well as they did because that amp was not... Like, looking back, that amp is not a pleasant amp to, you know, to really listen to at length. Um, especially when we played shows and they would mic it, man, it just got so... Like, the tone was just not terrific. But I think we spent a lot of time trying to dial it in for this, for this record. Well... A lot of time for me, which was like probably five minutes at the time. <laughs> you know, I just didn't, I've never known that much about gear and I've never cared a whole ton about it. So I've just kind of always deferred to like that, the Howie or the James of the band. And you're 
And your uh, guitar was a Epiphone Sunburst Les Paul. Yep, sure was. It's a, it's still a really fun guitar to play. It's like light, easy to change, easy to work on, like fit, you know, adjust. Uh, I've only dropped it, broken it like a couple times, so easy to fix. Um, yeah, and it's pretty. It's just a pretty guitar. It, it looks great on stage, uh, and I will say, having help you tear down or the few times i do remember helping you tear down i was deeply appreciative of the crate's weight uh it was a very yes. light amp <laughs> that was... isn't that incredible i remember yeah. the the first time i so the first very first amp i had was like a crate practice amp that was literally like this big and it sounded like trash um and then i got that crate solid state that bigger one and i was like two speakers you know 20 watts or whatever it was i'm moving up in the world <laughs> and the first time I even picked up a f- like a Fender reverb or whatever it is, or Fender like Fender Twin or something, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I couldn't. I didn't know. I didn't. I had no idea tubes were that heavy. Yeah, I I would definitely rather tear down for Shacker than tear down for Black Light Sunshine. It was any like day a, of the week. <laughs> total, absolutely. I mean, that crate amp was like a cardboard box with a few like boom boxes inside of it. <laughs> So as we as we go into the three hole with Talk Me Down, how did you approach sequencing this record? Um, you know, I don't think. I mean, I knew I wanted Autumn to be the second song because I really liked it. Wishful thinking. You know what? I think I probably put it in order that I wrote the songs because I'm not very imaginative when it comes to that stuff, or I wasn't. Um. I also like to stack the front half of the records with upbeat stuff, I guess. It was my, like, way of tricking people into thinking that the rest of the album would be really catchy, too, or something. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, But this... Oh, this is uh, Placing Blame? Oh, yeah. This is Placing Blame. Uh, Talk Me Down is number five. I, I honestly forgot about this song until... I listened to Dimly Lit Room the other day, and I forgot that this song was even a song, and it, like, the drum roll part's cool. It's a cool song. It sounds great on Dimly Lit, too. Like, it's just a well-done song. Like, I listened back to this record preparing to really judge myself pretty harshly for, like, everything I can or something, but it's, the performance is pretty good. The songs are pretty good. Like... There are things I would certainly change. I think, like probably some of the lyrics and vocal performance, and a little bit of the work I did on on guitar. But like, pretty competent. This is, and I mean, this is the. Uh, I'm pretty sure this is the first record I made on the O1 system. Totally was it. And then you know, Fireflies would have been next, and then Signs.Comments would have been in the summer after Fireflies. Yeah, I remember. When we started recording this record, I mean, you would just—it was fresh, like was fresh out of the box. Your, your the whole rig, and you had your manuals out and stuff like that. And I have this very distinct memory of James and I showing up uh, to to record or something, probably late, and and playing with like a beach ball or something in your studio, and. To your credit, you had a lot of patience before you were like, hey, please don't, please don't do this in my room. 
with all this stuff please don't like it sucks that i even have to tell you guys this you know what i mean it was just like space case Corey and like f it james just like this is what i'm doing so whew. i'm glad we didn't break it i would have been very sad <laughs> listen to that bass <laughs> yeah uh, one of the things I loved about Tucci's playing live was how performative he was. Yep. Uh, like, I think I think for this one he would pound the body of the of the bass with his right hand and he would just shake it violently. Yeah. And I don't know if that actually achieved any vibrato, but it was <laughs> awesome. It was awesome to see. Like, it was he was just a really captivating bass player to watch. He was. He was always the flashiest dress, too. He always had some, like, sparkly vest on or some, like, pat, patch, you know, pants or something like that. And uh, he definitely got into it. Uh, he would stomp really hard on the ground, but it was sort of like he was on the downbeat. So it was kind of confusing uh, during shows. But <laughs> I think he... I honestly think the glittery bass that he has still has, I think, that he played had some setting where he really could like loosen the string with a st- switch or there was like an ebo-y type thing attached to it so it might have been actually something he was wow. doing but I I could be completely wrong that's wild where where for folks that may not be familiar with Shacker where did this record sit in the development of the band um this was I mean these are all the first songs that we wrote um, there was a few duds that didn't make it, thank God. Uh, but um, most of it, yeah, yep, yeah. I was going through a blur phase at that time. Um, this song that we're listening to right now was when I was really into uh, Death Cab and Built a Spill. Uh, that the riff at the beginning of the song is a super duper big Death Cab crib. I mean, it sound. I mean, right now, like during this little breakdown, if not for the bass. <laughs> It would sound wow. like, yeah, yeah. It would sound like, <laughs> a, like a, a Death Cab kind of tribute. Um, uh, not that I took it directly or anything like that, but it was just, you know, I was in that zone. Oh, um, and this whole thing is like a really. I'm listening back to this record. I, I think I maybe understand a little bit more about why Rivers Cuomo really gets awkward listening to Pinkerton. Like this is a full-on, super vulnerable, self-disclosing, oversharing breakup record by someone who can't get enough of like pop music I guess but <laughs> but wants to be moody or something you know what I mean you like have a, a really huge you know James Taylor Cindy Lauper fan started an emo band or something I, I, I did get a sense of, of that tension in the live show uh, maybe not on this song but certainly on Autumn, or maybe on Routine or Love Song, where uh, it, it seemed like he had a, a very kind of discomfort with appearing like you were rocking out, uh, and, he, and he approached it with like a certain degree of parody, which I always thought was really cool. Yeah. No, totally. I think... Um... They can't take it too seriously when you wear cargo shorts to shows. Oh my god, yeah. They're so on the top, at the very top of the list of things I wish I'd done differently as far as my music career goes in college, that might be the biggest one. I mean, I used to make fun of James for Are asking us what shorts? we were going to wear for the show. Like, 
what are you guys gonna wear? I'd be like, ah, oh, Jesus. That's when you know the cape change joke came because it's like James gonna go backstage in between each goddamn song and like put on a different cape or whatever, macrame, whatever. But uh, I really did wear ripped up cargo shorts and flip flops and a hoodie. That's rough. But yes, I think <laughs> at this time in my life, I was very, very, very self-conscious about appearing pretentious or like earnest or sincere in any way or something, even if the music was sincere. And so it was like, that was my way of not coming across as like a kind of a douche or something. I mean, it wasn't conscious. I'm just a goofball. That's it. Like there was no, there was no act. I was just, I don't know. But I think I kind of overcorrected maybe a little bit. Um, like, like, did you feel like a certain degree of like, there was only so much fun you could have or, or maybe, I th- maybe I thought by being overly goofy, I was some sort of like tempering the heaviness of the songs or I don't know. It's sort of like if you're having a conversation with someone and you say something kind of vulnerable and instead of like letting it sit or whatever, you just kind of like make a joke to, you know, move, move along or something like that. But um, even if I wanted to be more earnest at the time, I couldn't have. I was too too silly. <laughs> still am. I still am. Just have slightly better self-control. Well, when you, when you think about the influences, uh, one of the things I always loved about coming to Doan and hanging out with y'all was hearing what you were listening to at the time. Can you talk about what was, what was spinning in your car, what was, what was spinning at home? Totally. You this, when you're writing this song? Uh, yeah, I think tons like i said tons of death cat for cutie tons of built to spill uh, a ton of not a surf uh super drag any basically any power pop like trio you could get your hands on uh, was that kind of stuff i don't know i mean this is this song very much feels like a like a not a surf uh, talk me down very much sounds like a not a surf kind of thing except for like the solo is pretty ridiculous on purpose, but yeah, it's just very simple. I mean, we were a trio, guitar, bass, drums, big melodies, almost like a punk sensibility, just because we didn't put a lot of embellishments on any songs. Like, we hardly did any overdubs for this or the other records. It was just those three instruments going. So yeah, a lot of power pop. James was listening to a lot of Collective Soul and Duncan Sheik and Tonic. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Um... I was probably listening to a lot of fish, maybe some Jimmy Buffett, <laughs> uh, also. And a lot of Radiohead, though it didn't really filter into the music, but mm, I mean, yeah, Kid A, Kid A was on constantly. Yeah, we. Oh yeah, that's I, right. You guys were always listening to Radiohead when yep. it came over. That's like, right. It was always Kid A in the bands. Yep. Okay, that's computer. right. Kid on constant. I got I got into Radiohead in high school, and then when Kid A came out, freshman year. We went to Homer's to buy it, and it blew my mind. And I probably listened to nothing but it for a while there. And it's almost like it was so aspirational and so incredible that I didn't even know how it, how I would begin to let it influence my songwriting at all. So I just kept it simple. But yeah, we just, I listened to a lot, a lot of Kid A. I still, it's my still my favorite Radiohead record. It's just incredible. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't hear. Out of anyone that was making music out of Cree at the time, I didn't hear Radiohead in the music. Uh, but whenever we're hanging out, 
it almost always Radiohead was playing. Uh, so it's definitely part of the context in which this music was created. I mean, this is very much not, Sophia is not a Radiohead song at all, but uh, man, this one, this one is such a good tune. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, what's interesting about this song is that it's, so I think every songwriter has at least a couple songs that they wrote um, and they were like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But for some reason, that's the song that most other people connect with off the record or something. Um, like a, a Howie and Scott had a song called The Picture Song that everyone loves, including me. And he and he's just like, yeah, I think it's all right. But like, I don't understand why people love it more than these other songs. And that's definitely that's not even the title. That's the title that people gave it because they listen to it. That doesn't. It's not called the picture song, not in the title, not in a parenthetical. <laughs> really? Yeah. But that's what the. That's like the nickname that people gave it. But it was it had? I swear it was listed as that somewhere. But I'm probably doing false memories, and we will settle this on the field at dawn. <laughs> I might have. I did an acoustic version later, maybe, and I put that as a parenthetical because that's how everyone knew it. Yeah. I think that's it, but yeah, this <laughs> it's such a good song. But um, yeah, Sophia is a song that we wrote, and I remember uh, like how we liked it pretty well right away. James really liked it, and every time we played a show, people would want to hear this uh, above any other. Like this is the only song that ever actually got a, re- a request to play, and I'm not sure. I'm still not sure why, but not not that I think it's bad. It's just that I think I'm inside it, so I don't quite get that. Well, I, I, I do think like a, the, the song it itself is obviously deeply vulnerable uh, and I think the this main lyric like I'd rather be medicine than be the one that brings you down again like is such a powerful statement but uh, I really you know in the last LPLP I was on we were talking about songwriters as drummers and how their sublimation to the song can really bring something forth that that's really powerful that perhaps the original songwriter didn't uh, didn't consider. And when I think about how you're drumming on this tune, um, there are a lot of really tasteful choices that make this thing. I, I mean, this the song could be a waltz if you wanted to phone it in. Uh, right. But what you did here was to complement the build was so powerful well, that's that's a really good point um both tucci and howie are musicians who add so much vibe to a song mm-hmm. that they're not playing guitar or singing on it's insane you know like it's easier to add vibe with like a synth or keys or something but like howie's drumming on the the later uh, sleepover ep another band that we were in um it's like that's it feels like it's half of the half of this hook or half of it's like sets the whole tone of the thing and how he definitely did that on this record uh, as did James like you could just hear him <laughs> do you remember so I want to go but I've been holding just in my mind you know Rob kind of asked where where this falls in in Shacker and I'm going to answer that but Corey think about how we got together because I don't really remember but we we arrived at Doan college now Doan University in the fall of 2000 together in the same class in our freshman year we played in a four-piece band called the remnants uh with guys named josh and matt and then 
So that was freshman year, and then the next year, Josh didn't come back to school. Correct. Matt was still at school, but I don't remember. I don't remember why we weren't. Matt was playing bass. I don't remember why we weren't playing with Matt and how we ended up. So you and I stayed together and brought James in on bass. You were friends with James. Yep. But I don't remember how we sort of like lost track of Matt or how we started. I don't remember. I, I literally think it was mostly that Matt moved across campus to the quads and we were still in freeze, whereas he was in freeze like the, the year before in the jungle. There. All right, because you and James were roommates. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, because Dome College is like a very broad campus. Like walking across <laughs> Dome for band practice was too far. <laughs> it was honestly, you joke, but wrangling people like me and Josh and Matt to get to the same building at the same time anyway was probably a nightmare. Um, and Matt, if you can imagine, is even spacier than the rest of us. So I think it's almost like when he went across campus to the quads, he forgot that the other world existed. <laughs> like, I think he was just... Well, plus, I became friends with James the year before. We decided to room together, and he played bass. So it was sort of like... I mean, I, I think we may have offered, like, Matt if he wanted to, like, play guitar or sit in or something, but... I think I think that's kind of it. I think we were just like he had right, other stuff going on. Yep. Yeah. He was super busy. So. So then, so as a trio, we'd written and played shows and stuff for about a year and a half before making this album. And this album is basically everything we had at the time, minus. I mean, we had maybe two or three of our very first songs that we could afford to cut. The coffee house show from the um, but this is basically what we had. More wild bass down. Dude, it's so wild. Uh, it's, it's so out there, I love it. It's like <laughs> so, one of my favorite moments of this song. <laughs> is my so i'm so bad at stepping on pedals at the right time i'm just terrible about it and i get so nervous about not doing it in time that i do it way too early and that's whenever i hear that sound of the pedal coming on it's literally like someone like there's a high school production going on and the person who's about to come on stage just kicks the door open like just a second before their line starts and just starts yelling their line like that's totally it oh my god there's a good one in Love Song, too, that I know you like. We'll have to point that one out. You know what's awesome is that... And we didn't redo it! We just left it in! Well, so with, with that one, I'll tell you what happened. I recorded that part of Love Song, and you and James laughed so hard when you heard it that you were like, we have to leave it in. Like, it's just too... It's Because, like, I've seen Howie laugh a handful of times in my life so hard that he, like, started crying and had to, like, wipe his face down with a handkerchief. And that was absolutely one of them. It was so... <laughs> you could just hear, like, the eager, like, lack of attention slash nerves in that take. And it was just a very me thing to do. Just come ripping in, like, right... Like a good split second before <laughs> before everyone else. Well, I, I, I'm surprised to hear you had trouble hitting the hitting the switch on the pedals because so much of this record is about transitions between clean to crunch or fast to slow or from you know heavy to, to poppy 
Um, what what was it? What was it about that device as a songwriter that that kept bringing you in? You know, what's so funny about that is that it was totally unconscious, and, and by that I mean all the bands I listened to that I looked up to and wanted to emulate had that loud, quiet, loud. I I didn't un- really understand until later, like in my mid twenties, that more indie bands or you know alternative bands didn't have quite that starker contrast between choruses and verses than did. But I was so obsessed with uh, Weezer and Nirvana and the Pixies and Superdrag and Not a Surf, and that's their whole shit. I was just in my mind at that time. I would have just said that. If you were to ask me at that time, I would have said that's just how songs are written. Like rock songs are written, like quietish intro, like medium, you know, medium verse without much distortion, and then a chorus with lots of distortion. Just in the air, right? Yeah, it absolutely was. It just was like pro forma, you know. Like I, I don't even. I'm not sure if I could have thought to write a song in a different way. Well, it, it, the transitions ex- extend further than just like you know, clean and gain. Um, and that, that's one of the things I, I love about it. Like, this is a good example, you know, where we're not just, we're ju- we're not just moving from crunch to clean and it's basically kind of the same song. You're, you're not, I, and one of the reasons I love playing with you guys or, or sharing a bill with you is the, you know, there, there was a part of Weezer, especially at that point, that just seemed so self-serious. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, and blessfully, they grew as human beings later in their career and appear to have fully <laughs> grown beyond that uh, restriction. But, you know, you all, you all would have, like, a little boogie break in your song. And, uh, the, the crowd would, would get a little shake in the britches. And it was, it was such a... It was very refreshing from a musical context that was just deeply and profoundly serious at the time. Yeah, it, uh, you know, looking back on some of these songs, especially like Love Song, like it amazes me how long some of those songs are. Like every time I switch from one part to another, like, you know, the verse and the chorus are completely different. And there's, I let there be an intro for each time we go into it. So it's like, it just becomes this like long (laughs) process. Um, and uh, I think it's almost like I, I had written various parts of songs. So it's, so at that time, instead of like writing a song all the way through, usually I would have just a grab bag of different parts I'd written. And I think I would put ones together that made sense um, after the fact. And I think this song, uh, like I had that like jazz chord verse. And I was like, that sounds cool. And then I had this chorus and it sounded cool. And I put them together. And definitely the same thing with Love Song. Like that is a, it works in its own way, but it is a very uh, contradictory song as far as tone goes. And this is, a, this is another example, I think, with this, this guitar riff, this kind of twangy, this is very, very not a surf, uh, like a, a twangy, kind of not shreddy, like melodic introduction to the tune. This is another one everyone liked. I'm not sure if you ever got requests for it, but everyone really loved this tune. I, I will say, I understand 
I think this may be my favorite Shacker song that we ever did, um, and especially on Dimly Lit Room. Like, I like it on this record a lot. I think it works amazingly. Um, I'm really proud of this little humble riff. But uh, on Dimly Lit Room, like, it just reaches a level that's hard to reach. Um, I don't know. It's always been my favorite, uh, along with sort of Talk Me Down. And, uh, on this record, I like some of the other the other stuff a whole lot too. Um, I want this one has some. I forgot this has some like extra production mojo. I mean, it got an acoustic guitar, got tremolo on the clean electric. I mean, we're really Whoa, going to buddy. town here. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, for the for the benefit of folks who may be hearing Shacker for the first time, we we mentioned Dimly Lit Room a few times. Um, can you talk about that record and where it sits with respect to Part of My Potential? Uh, yeah, so a lot of the same songs plus some some newer songs we recorded for that. That was about a, uh, either right before graduation that we recorded that or right after. Um, it was February of '04. There we go. So right so before graduation. Uh, from about college. right before graduation, roughly a year, a little less than a year after making this album. Yep. Um, James had graduated from college. Uh, Howie and I were still in school, but Howie had been in Africa. Um, and while he was in Africa studying abroad, um, James and I found a cello player, Annie, and we were doing some other stuff with her, kind of under Shacker, but kind of not. Um, and we decided that it would be cool to do an acoustic record with uh, cello just because so many of our songs lent itself to that and plus we just figured with, especially with the cello like how cool um, and a lot of the songs worked so well on that record um, it's just yeah it's pretty wild but fully okay it's like that that model just lent itself perfectly and then we immediately turned it had some new songs on it mm-hmm. And a few unique songs. That, that's the only place they appear. And we pretty much turned around immediately and started recording the other studio album, uh, Knowing Her Best, Blackbeard Defends the Open Sea. We should have called it The Dimly Lit Room Blackbeard. <laughs> Just Blackbeard's dimly lit room. The dimly lit Blackbeard. I think, yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty, that was a pretty earnest record there. This is, this one's huge built to spill phase. It's also brutal. Like when you, when you talk about this being a, a breakup record, like this is the one that I'm like, I, I think like every big breakup I had, uh, after you put out this record, this is one I would immediately, this is one tune I would immediately return to. I'd be like, this guy, killer, yeah. he gets it, dude. <laughs> like, he gets it. This is what it feels like. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I love the I love the feedback transition to, uh, Howie, do you remember how that was achieved? Because that'd be tough to do with a solid state amp. Uh, I'm not sure... Have we come to it yet? What are you? I'm not sure what you're talking about. The the intro, the intro to this tune has that kind of like buzzy, feedbacky. Oh. Intro, but, but it's not like overpowering like every feedback intro is ever. Without listening to it, I uh, I think I may have recorded 
I may have reversed it, right? So like we recorded a chord and then reversed it so you get a swell. Look at you. I'll have to listen back. I'll try and uh, flash up on the screen or put it in the show notes. I'll give it another listen and see if I can give a better diagnosis. But that might be it. I remember being intrigued with Pro Tools' new ability to reverse audio. <laughs> so you got to throw that in somewhere. Yeah, if it does it, you got to do it. Switcheroo, the old flip-flop. There we go. Uh, so so we talked about this being a, being a breakup record. How how did you feel after it was out? Um, it felt pretty good at the time. I mean, it was cathartic, especially. I mean, I just, I, I like, it was just like the first time I was uh, super in love and, and got broken up with, and it was such a good thing, um, but I didn't know it at the time. Like, at the time, you're just devastated, and you're in this small school where all your mutual friends are there, and you can't avoid the person. Um, and, uh... I was so young and so sensitive and way out of my element, right? I was in Lincoln, or, you know, Crete, Nebraska, after I grew up in Ventura, California. Um, and I just think it was like, you know, I wasn't like a, a kid, but I still wasn't old enough. Like, I, my brain wasn't fully developed, you know? And I just had way too many emotions to deal with. Um... So yeah, this was this whole record was like, you know, kind of written from a place of like devastation. And I, again, it's a it's a little bit it's not embarrassing to listen back. It's more like it's just a bit much. I mean, it's kind of like reading your diary from when you're a teenager and you have some unrequited love. You're just like, you know, wowie, like that's a bit much. But um, well, we're literally twenty. Yeah, you know? I mean, this we're this kids. is what yeah. twenty sounds like. Yep. Um, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't judge it or regret it in that way at all. Um, it's just, I think it's, uh, what am I trying to say? It's mostly wild to listen to because I can't, you can't remember how that feels. You know what I mean? As a teen, it's like trying to remember how you felt when you were 14. Like it was off the chart, you know, your emotions at that point are off the charts and like you never feel as like invested or or hopeful or something like that like that you do when you're a kid like i don't know i can't explain it but um or maybe you do but it's just a different was, was there a, was there a period you found listening to the record difficult um not ever because of the lyrics <laughs> um uh, i would say i would say if i ever felt weird listening to it it was probably because i wish i had done something different vocally uh, but no no not as a piece of art or, or as a, a confessional or message or something no it wasn't it's not it's not difficult and actually i mean it's so cool to be able to listen to a, a mastered version of it for the first time ever <laughs> right now like yeah i have to say this this the remaster sounds really good dude it feels different okay that's good to hear it feels too very much. different wow i tried to do as little as possible so that's cool to hear i hope and i hope it feels true to the original i mean i constantly reference i would take all the processing off constantly and just check mm -hmm. but i wasn't doing too much i was very conservative with the processing I was, I mean, 
because we knew that we weren't going to master and we didn't really even know how to it was such, such a foreign thing kind of for us at the time or at least it was to me um, it's almost like we mixed knowing that we couldn't have that wild of a dynamic or something like that so I think when we let people hear it I think a few people I played it for and I asked like thought it was mastered like Terry Daly who you know from Star City Scene he was like I totally thought it was mastered and I think it's just because we put so much work into well how we put so much work into getting the volumes just right well it, and, and for folks who are who maybe are uh, a little younger than us there was a day when mastering was not $500. Like, like mastering back then was like like $5,000, which may as well have been $50 million right. to us at that time, right? Like, it was it was something that, that was a huge investment for, you know, a, a band in a scene that wasn't, you know, wasn't selling out a 200-person per club right. every other weekend. So it's... You know, it, it was a very difficult thing to do at the time. Um, but it, even even the version that I was listening to, you know, the original version of this, which I was listening to leading up to this, one of the things I was struck by is that the mix does feel timeless in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like, like this does sound better, but what you had was really strong. I think I think Howie did a, a great job on that, which is good. I mean, it's good that like from early on in like how he's recording career he was like a, a pretty astute student of the game just because there's no way any of this would have gotten done or if it did not very well if you know how he hadn't been there <laughs> like james, yeah. i think james and i when we were living together went halfers on an eight track or something and neither of us ever took it out of the box like it never it just never would have happened so routine this is one of my favorite songs on the record um, it is also one that I returned to this past year uh, obviously very different context with the pandemic but um, you know where, where where do you feel this sits in you know your catalog of, of um, as far as a pop like power pop song I'm super duper proud of this one um, I if I if I were writing this kind of sound or song right now, uh, it's almost like I wrote it on acoustic and I thought it sounded good that way. And then we played it distorted with drums and bass and stuff and we thought it sounded cool that way. And so instead of trying to blend the two or trying to choose, I was like, here's the arrangement. We'll play the song once all the way through on acoustic and then once all the way through <laughs> with distortion. So I don't know if I would have done that. Um, but I really like... I really like the uh, the transition, like the whole theme of it. Um, there's kind of like three sections that are all super melodic to me. Um, I especially love listening to the, the acoustic, you know, bit of it at the beginning. Um, yeah, I'm stoked on the, the vocal melodies. I think this was like, uh, I remember spending a lot of time on, on the vocal melody to get it just kind of right how I wanted it. It should be said, if, if you want to talk about the rhythm section's contribution to a song, uh, their work on these builds are just so critical. Uh, this song is really about those builds in a big way. Um, 
something else I would have done, I think, uh, is stop singing during all these parts. I'm glad I took it down a little bit right here, but just like what you said, the, the builds were so awesome. Um, and I think just the instrumentation alone could have stood on its own really well. Um, and maybe done some other instrumental overdubs or something like that, but... Yeah, we could have reverbed out your voice, you know, something. Something. Buried it. I'm not, uh, this I'm is not a sure really I'm unusual I'm arrangement. I'm sure I'm there, though, but the lyric is so critical for the song. I think having it hang out there, it feels kind of lonely, mm-hmm. you know, when it's out there on its own. So uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure that's a creative impulse I would necessarily have. Yeah, I was just I was just shooting from the hip. But this is a really unusual arrangement for you, Corey. I mean, you're mostly kind of A B A B. Yep. And this is like A B C D A B C D D prime. You yep. know, it's a real weird one for you. Um. This is a really good example of, so I remember um, Howie and I were recently talking about Roy Orbison's songwriting um, and about how when you when you listen, so Roy Orbison, you think of him and you think of him as this, in my mind, you think of him as a straightforward pop songwriter or something. And Howie pointed out that when you sit down and listen to his songs and note the arrangement, he'll do an A, B, C part, then B, and then a D part, and then never touch the A or or B parts again or something or he'll just move on and finish it some of the way and I think this song was like one of the first times I kind of did that um, there's a few songs on the next record uh, or uh, um, Knowing Your Best where the, the song arrangements were ABC ABC um, and then I got sort of weirder later and it wasn't at all a conscious effort to be unorthodox it was just I wrote the two or three or four whatever parts that I liked and they went together in a very specific way, and so that's what I did, but I, I really like it. And then we uh, come to the closer, Love Song. I think I think this is the tune I would lean on whenever I was introducing anyone to Shacker. I'd be like, all right, this is the one that's gonna hook you. Here you go. This is a... This is definitely a, a, a Weezer-y chorus, because it's got that, like, what is it, 6-8? Guitar, guitar rhythm. Yeah, but, it's, it, but then you have these transitions, right. and it's just way more fun yeah, no, <laughs> than totally. anything on the Blue Album, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, on this record... Um, I, I think it's fair to say that a lot of my influences at the time were super apparent, uh, but not in a derivative way, more just like, you know, my 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 uh, musical knowledge, like all the bands that I loved was a lot smaller than it is today. Um, so I was just pulling from what I knew and uh, that's what I knew, but I think it worked out really well, and it ended up being really catchy. Well, and it should be said, like, the bands that were available to you were also, I think, higher than the average college student, right? Like, um, you know, with Howie's access to his college radio station, you know, I had a similar thing at, at Hastings. You know, I felt like we were getting access to a lot of really 
high quality music, but if I compare it to what, you know, what I had like thumbing through like the new EPs every week at the college radio station to what's available now, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to even compare it. Like I, I hear more new good music per month, you know, when I'm 40. <laughs> I, I probably I, I probably hear more new good music at 40 years old that it's probably like 5x what I heard when I was 20. Like there just wasn't that that many records that you could listen to. Right. Like usually I feel like the way I heard about bands was somebody I know owning a record, and then I would have to kind of decide if I liked it well enough to buy it or if I would just wanted to borrow it. Um, and it was more of a, like, now anybody can say the name of any band or any record and I can hear it um, immediately, which is really, really cool. Um, but it also kind of, it makes me feel less, um, like, deliberate about it or something. Like, I feel like when you're, uh, uh, when, you, when it was just CDs and stuff, if somebody gave me a record to listen to, I would, like, make an event of it. Um, Well, I, I, I will say, especially for for us who went to school in a, in a in a rural context, like the one thing that is nice is if you have a sound you're really into, it's really easy for you to find more of that sound now than it was. Especially because it's not like we could go to hold shows. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, we gotta hear this part. Oh no, I jumped the gun. I was waiting for the for the the pedal push. This, oh, the pedal push? Yeah, it's, oh, like, it's coming up next. This is what, this, the jangly part is my favorite part of the song. This is um, this is when I was really into Christian ska for about five minutes. I don't know where this came from, to be honest. <laughs> this is like... It, it does have a five-iron It totally feel. does. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like... Oh, my God. Super tone strike back! <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know where this part came from at all. Like, it's so... Do you like that? This is kind of a two-step. You like that two-step folky feel? Yeah. No, it, it's so. It's so. It's uh. It's so endearing. In a way, and so dorky. Like if it was a if it was a little weird kid, I'd want to give it a hug and tell him to hang in there. Like it's it's not bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost a full eighth note. It's almost in time. It's that early. Like, I just love it. Like, think of like. I love that you caught it too. Oh man! <laughs> like you knew it when you did it. <laughs> See, like, like the the one car horn that honks louder, like right before everybody else is in a traffic jam. Like it's just so excited to be there. <laughs> Distorted tones on this record are a lot better than they had any right to be. That is 100% true. Yeah. The fact that you got that out of a Crate 100 is ridiculous. I mean, that's like, it sounds like Dinosaur Junior level, like, good fuzz. Like, it's very tasteful. 
I, and nothing like I remember from the live yeah, show. Yeah, no. Like, it was so bad. It was so hard to make it sound good. I don't know how we did it, honestly. Like, I don't know if we... Before I borrow anything from James, but like how he said, I think it was all... I think I the whole time I was plugged directly from my guitar into the amp. So, I don't know. I could Well, he he made my front man sound decent. So, he he has some experience working with crappy right. solid state amps. Right. <laughs> like like we didn't have money for amps, so it, it was he got a lot of practice. <laughs> there were a lot of solid state amps out there. Howie, what was your first amp that you that you had at Crete? Well, my first real amp was the uh uh Hot Rod Deluxe. I I borrowed a a Vox tube amp uh, prior to that that I played in No Front. Yeah. Mm, no um, front. But my first, my f- I went straight for the. I mean, that was what everybody bought at the time. You know, if you're getting a tube amp, and you were kind of a local student level musician, you got a Hot Rod Deluxe. That's awesome. <laughs> kind of wanna. I'm going to look that up later. I just need a note of it. This is when we'll flash it up on the screen. Howie with the Hot Rod Deluxe. And then the next one will be when we do the shirtless sit-ups. Holding feet. <laughs> That's good. Put it up. Uh, you used my Hot Rod on, on Knowing Her Best. That's right. That was... That's why it sounds different. Honestly, I would say... I mean, Annie for sure. And the songs for sure. But I think that's easily the biggest difference between the sounds of those two records like for me anyway just because the fr- the first check record is absolutely loud quiet loud and with the knowing your best it was all about i mean we had the, i had pretty much the same um settings through every song but it was just the attack and i would i would finger pick pretty quietly during a lot of verses and then you know, strum power chords of the pick during the chorus, so it was less like. Yeah, I don't think you used the foot switch much. Nope. You just you with your right hand, you controlled the level of gain. Very different feel. I will point out at this point. So I left off the uh, the little bonus track that folks who have heard the CD might be familiar with. It will be on the Bandcamp download. So if you if you really need to hear the uh, the weirdo bonus track, it's uh, on the they're Bandcamp excellent. Download. Excellent clavas on it. Like, just the clavas solo is really breathtaking. And that was done on a clave that was, um, it was a plastic alligator <laughs> one. It had an alligator mouth. <laughs> I remember. It is um, piercing. <laughs> like, it's just like. Yeah. Ugh. I think I've said on the show before, I, I kind of have a terrible memory for events and, and people and, but I remember recording the bonus track very clearly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do too. I think it was like every, I think we recorded it, the record almost in chronological order. I feel like it was just, we wrote, I wrote the songs almost in that order. Um, and I think I, I think we recorded it almost in that order. And I remember the reason recording the bonus track was so goofy was because we'd just gotten done tracking so much of that stuff. And we had zero just slap happy. Yeah. I just didn't care. Like, about how good the secret bonus track could be and in fact like if it's bad or whatever then the better but it but you had to have one it was 2003 yeah, yeah, yeah. you had to have a secret track oh, yeah. like there, that was you didn't have a choice absolutely i know isn't that funny secret tracks 
were like it would they did come standard on a, on a lot of models that year <laughs> but like it was just very goofy i mean it was like um uh what's that uh the secret track on dookie from green day it's it was that mm. same same exact flavor like us just goofing around or didn't goldfinger have a secret track oh yeah one of them mm. i think hang up says like two secret tracks on it. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty two of them no they're they're like we're not we're not well it's goldfinger so they're not gonna be outdone by green nope. Day. they have one <laughs> one secret track and then a secreter track like it's so funny just bands just loved it at that time well, well, I, it, was this was this the year after the They Might Be Giants fingertips thing? Like they had a record that had like twelve secret tracks. Oh my god, that's a whole nother record. Yeah. Wait a minute. Like, like uh, yeah. Do you remember that? Uh, I don't. I don't remember that. Uh, maybe how he does, but I want to say, didn't Rob? Didn't you go to that They Might Be Giants show with us at the Royal Grove? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Totally. That's what I thought. I I was like. Because I was trying to think of when I hung out with you at like a Perkins or a Denny's at one in the morning. And it was after that show. Like we went, uh, like me, Howie, uh, Rebecca, JT, we met you there, maybe a few other people. And it was like such a. We had a possible. It was such a 2000s event. Like the Royal Grove was so ridiculous. It's a gentleman's club during the day and then a concert venue at night. <laughs> And then, like, there's a buffet or something. But I remember it was, like, right around the election of 2000. And it was, like, that was the whole, the whole vibe of being a college student at that time. So I remember having, like, a, a, you know, not contentious necessarily, but a passionate conversation with you and Howie and JT and Rebecca and everybody who was there at this diner at like two in the morning or something like that. That was, you reminded me of two things. One, I'm pretty sure the stage decorations were like Millard Fillmore style, but stars and stripes. And they were kind of doing this Millard Fillmore (laughs) thing. Maybe. And I'm also pretty sure Corey, that I locked the keys in the car that night (gasps) and you, Oh, that's right. And we had to jimmy jimmy the the lock lock with a coat hanger, which was the most California thing I've ever seen you do ah that is amazing i forgot all about yeah. that but that was oh wow that's a that's interesting you really bailed us out there yeah too. it's i think that would be interesting to i think i i mean i think i'd done it a few times on friends cars or something like that but i i remember it pretty well and i was i think i if i had to guess i probably just went Somebody give me a coat hanger or something like that. And then I just. Pr- First of all, where did we get the coat? Hanger? Somebody we asked around like people where? in the parking lot. <laughs> people in the parking lot are just like, oh, sure, kids. Here's the here's your coat hanger. Don't tell me what it's for. <laughs> Nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah. It's one o'clock in the morning. Don't tell me what it's for. I don't want it back. It's yours now. Oh don't make God. don't tie me back to this. Um. Oh, and I remember you. It was it was interesting because you didn't go inside the car door and pull like some mechanical lever. I remember you went top of the window down underneath the window up and then you pulled the physical <laughs> the physical thing on the inside of the door and made it go up and man it took us a while. It, it was like a 30 minute operation. That's incredible. It was, I love yeah. that. Oh man. And wait, uh I want to say it was either that night 
or really close right around there, Howie and I were coming back to Crete from Lincoln. It would have been a different time, I guess, because we were all four together with other folks from Doan. But Howie and I were driving back to Crete one night and he got pulled over. Um, and I don't even know why. Maybe a busted taillight. Howie can speak to that. But Headlight out, um, yeah. That's what it was. And uh, when once we got pulled over, um, I put my hands on the dash because um, that's what they teach you in like California driving school. Um, and I remember how he did it too, because he, how he had never been pulled over up to that point. So he did it too. He had his hands on the steering wheel and the cop mentioned it. Like he thought it was funny. Like he got to the window and he's like, Oh, you're not from around here or something. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah. And I've thought the two times I've been pulled over since then, I've, I've done that and thought about that because, because of that night. Wow. That's wild. I mean, it makes sense. Like they want to see your hands, but it's just, totally. it's wild. Um, I think the I think the cop, well, well, now I think they would, now I think it's a very different environment. I think they would be deeply appreciative. Totally. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> for sure. And without, I'm sure this wasn't on your mind at all. I certainly didn't think about it in this way, but you know, that, what you said to me that night in a, in a way primed me for coming to an understanding about police violence and police brutality, you know, that I've been learning over the last five, 10 years, you know, and, and having that moment of like, Oh, I need to signal, you know, that I'm not a threat Mm -hmm. and that this is potentially a threatening situation that's not something that many white kids in Nebraska in 2003 were thinking of. And I, I wasn't thinking about it at that level at that time either, but it, it through that experience, I think I was more receptive to learning about how other people experience police violence and experience those types of situations. Uh, it is interesting to me. Um, like I've, I've talked to maybe one or two people that, um, had a, had a sort of like change of attitude where, um, you know, beforehand they were like, I don't get why people, um, get, you know, get to these situations, like just do it. The cop tells you to do and whatever, and you'll be fine. Like, just don't do anything stupid or something like that. And they have an experience where it's very low, low risk, right? Like, um, a cop, um, wants to look in their car or says they don't believe them about a, a, uh, they're not, you know, not having their license on them or whatever it is, some, some small inconvenience they have to put up with. And then they're like, Whoa, police being jerks is real, you know? <laughs> and then they're like really incensed. Um, but it's, it is, I think it's good to have a, a small experience like that to realize that, um, it could happen. It'll, it probably won't happen to you if you're a white Midwesterner but it totally could and it could happen to anybody and it can i think the biggest lesson is it can happen to you even if it's unfair or for no reason like you can you can know that you're not a threat in your car but if you're moving your hands really quickly where they can't see the cop doesn't know you they don't know if you're on something or who you are or what your story is they probably haven't even run your plate yet so like you know that can get you into trouble which is pretty crazy <laughs> like Madness. Madness. Uh, but I, I'm glad to hear Howie uh, is continuing the long tradition of 
folks on the Mr. Furious label uh, for getting pulled over for vehicular deficiencies. Uh, I'm glad I'm not the Indeed. only one. <laughs> Wait, you know, hey, and thanks for mentioning it. This is actually Mr. Furious catalog number 225. Um, before Mr. Furious even exists, it was kind of a joke at that point, or we just made it up. It wasn't intended to be anything. Um, but whatever, that's where I took when I actually launched Mr. Furious Records a year and a half after this album came out. Um, took the name, started over with catalog number one. Yeah, that's so fun. Oh, right, because 225 was the room. Freeze 225, yeah. Yeah, I think that James and I lived in or something. And I think we also, this this would have been a very, like, probably Corey James thing to think, uh, which is that it's cooler if it seems like we've put out 224 records before this or something like that, even though <laughs> absolutely zero people were even sort of fooled by that. Um, you know, they could tell by the cover art. So, uh, yeah, that was... <laughs> That's pretty goofy, but I remember um, we were trying to, th- again, I think it was just a, the record label was just like a legitimacy, legitimacy thing. Like if we, if we make like there's a record label, maybe more people will take it more kind of seriously or hear it. And I don't know if that worked either, but um, the, like how we definitely had the, the Mr. And I know you love the movie and I love, I know that you love the the idea of a superhero who whose superpower is just that they get really mad, but nothing special happens and they don't gain any skill or advantage or anything. They just get more angry. <laughs> and their and their whole origin story is a a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Actually it works it's a pretty good metaphor, I guess. <laughs> like um but yeah, I think he would have had the strongest opinion about what what to call a record label at that time. Well, he had the he had the strongest opinion that we should make records, which yeah <laughs> was was I, I mean certainly a, I, I'm sure an ambition we all had, but the ability to realize it was very distant. I I mean I honestly think about how many records wouldn't have happened, um, had not like how we been in that. Uh, like scene or something like that. Um, and I even think about no kidding. music or records or projects that I work on today, at least half of the stuff I do, I feel like, uh, is because like how he's like, Hey, we should work on this. And like, then I have somebody else holding me accountable instead of just me because it's when it's, when it's just me. Like again, like I think if it would have been a, if we would have had a drummer that wasn't into recording or, didn't have a work ethic or something like that, then James and I maybe would have tried to record part of a record on a four track and then quit. So, um, it, which is what basically all the bands we played with. Right. Did. Totally. Absolutely. Like all the bands we played with, you think of, you think of the folks that like did make records and the folks that didn't like, they were the ones that knew Howie Howard and they're the ones who did not. <laughs> and it was, it was wild. Like there's so many bands in that scene that just never got anything on wax. Um, Who are you thinking? I, so many bands we open for. What are you thinking of, Rob? Can you name some? Well, like, well, like, Blame the Game had like the one record, and that was the record that they did with you. I have some. And I have some blames. 
I have some off-label blame stuff I can shoot you if you want. Off-label. <laughs> uh, some some artisanal, free-range, uh, organic blame. Yeah. More like black black market, gray market. Like they use the same materials, but it's they not did, the same I don't remember what they released, but they did... They did a six-song EP with me that I think they only put four out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other two songs are really good. And then... Well, well, like uh, like the... What, what I'm thinking of is, like, the the Nebesniak brothers had a uh, ska band that was really great. I remember seeing it live several times. Uh, but it wasn't until they formed the Killigans that they ever got anything on... Really anything on wax. Were they in Eighth um, Wave? Was that it? Uh... They were, yeah, Eighth Wave was the was the band, and they were a super they were awesome. fun ska band. Like, they were really really fun. Uh, but I I think they had an EP that was on like Burn CDRs or something like that, and it didn't sound great. Uh, certainly didn't sound as good as the live show. Um, and then you know when they got linked up with you when they were doing the Irish thing, like, oh man, completely, completely different experience. And and they're still making records. Yeah, they're fantastic, and I just—I don't want to give anyone the wrong impression. All I've done with the Killigans is master one of them, and I forget which what the title is, but it's outstanding. Yeah, and not because of the mastering great. job. The rec- the band is phenomenal. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're one of those bands who, like, uh, likes like, like uh, style wise, they're not usually something I would listen to. But they're a band that when you see live, you realize why so many people come to see them and they get paid really well. Like they are amazing musicians, amazing like showmen, um, and they are leaving it out on the field every time they play. Like they're pro- they're professional on a level that most local bands are. <laughs> you know, like they're thinking about every little detail of each song, and they're thinking about their presence, and they're thinking about. Easter presents and Christmas presents that are thinking about like album art and all that stuff. Like it's just very, very, very intentional, which is why I think they were able to get to a different level than a lot of other local bands. Like when I think back on Shacker, especially at the time, I'm sure I really, really wanted to and thought it was possible to like get some sort of deal or whatever. Um, But it was a very like um, it was a naive thought to think that that kind of thing is mostly the product of the quality of your songs or something like that. Um, just, and by that, I mean, if you have a trio on stage and one dude is wearing like cargo shorts and flip flops and a hoodie and has like bleached hair or something like that, like, and, but nobody else looks like that either. Like that's a, that's a, It's a hard thing for your brain to make sense of. I don't know. I, I think at the time, right, I was just naive, like, oh, we could we could get some acclaim, you know, on the merit of our songs alone or something like that. And it's just not. Yeah, we had this weird story. or I had this weird thought. You can see if you agree that, like, if the music was good enough, somehow, some way, mysteriously, like a deal would materialize out mm-hmm. of thin air. Yep. And we didn't really understand that it was about the draw and how many how many bodies can you put in a bar? Yep. And I was, it was way late in the game that I realized that that was the metric that mattered. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like 
I didn't really, I mean, I, I had heard and I understood on an intellectual level that your band had to look cohesive in some way for you to like, for it to make sense enough to people. Um, and you can look weird, but you all just need to sort of look weird in the same universe or something like that. And I didn't really, really get that on a gut level until like a few years ago. And I, I remember seeing a band live and it was like, they all looked like they were on loan from some other kind of band, you know? And it was like, <laughs> it was like a weird contradiction. You know what I mean? Like the music sounded good. And I was like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like a bunch of green peas next to dog food or something. I don't understand. Like it just, it just, <laughs> uh, and it, I think at the time, especially like you were saying what you said about, um, if the music is good enough, something will happen. That was absolutely my thought. It was a purest thought, and it also allowed me to um, avoid putting any effort into something that I felt was superficial, like press photos or writing bios or networking or image or anything like that. Um, you know, whatever, because you think about certain artists that are able to not play that game and get big, but there's but that's like one out of every gazillion that you know that happens with that i mean i think of all the local bands that did get um a decent amount of press or notoriety or whatever and they all had at least one if not several members who were like make making getting ins and looking cool and knowing right people and playing the right venues and stuff and opening up for the right bands and becoming friends with so and so and i don't mean in a in a calculating uh way necessarily but just that's how it you know, that's how it works. Even it happened organically, but it was very like, it was a business. It was a business. And I was definitely not thinking well, of it well, that way. There, there was also, to be fair, there was also timing. Like when, when we were, when we were making records, corn was the biggest band <laughs> in the world. Okay. <laughs> like like there, there's, if I, I truly believe if we would have landed five years before or five years later, it would have been a very different story, um, but the the music we were playing, no one no one was into at the time. That is like, such a good point. Has to be. Has to be. I said. think about the t the bands that I've been in in Lincoln and in Crete, and what else was popular during that time, and all the bands that were super huge at that time were like straight out of junior high, eighth wave, um, like Blacklight Sunshine. Uh, what's the other one? The and and, and and to be clear, by super huge. They would half fill Knickerbockers. Yeah, well, some of those bands, it was crazy when they played. So when they played the regular room, they would half fill the ma the main room. But when they played the early shows for high school kids from six to six to nine p.m. on Fridays, I've never seen a local venue that full ever. And Shacker was not really music for high school kids, or at least we didn't market ourselves that way. Um, I wish we had, we would have made way more money and sold way more records, <laughs> but like, I don't know. Uh, it's arc sort of tunes weren't quite what people who were interested in local music were into at that time. I feel like it was definitely like a punk ska kind of metal, like new, new metal ish kind well, of thing. New metal specifically. Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to say yeah. for the meeting minutes that I'm still making records. I made a record this week. Uh, almost. I got a, I'm doing a five piece synthesizer record. I'm four are done. So just put it, put it we down. Are, I wanted, I still make records. Well, Hey, I, I, 
I made a record two years ago. Kepler's still making records. Like we're we're still we're still okay. Doing you, it. you said when we were making records, as though it was the past. Well, well, when we were making records around the gotcha. time of this record. Like I'm not claiming. No one's saying. No one's saying you're too old to make records. Yeah. <laughs> no one. No one believes. But that. yeah, I think. Uh, I th I think you're going to be the lead engineer in the nursing home. That's the plan. When it comes to your time. It's, I mean, it's pretty <laughs> incredible. Like, uh, right. So, so making records in that era was buck wild. And, um, I feel like, again, still as an adult, you know, 20 years after, after Howie and I first met, um, Howie has only sped up his music production. I feel like he's putting out a record literally every two weeks or working on three at a time or something like no that. No kidding. And it is, I can't imagine what it would be like to be that prolific, but also um, it's really inspiring. And I feel like if it weren't for Howie, um, even if he wasn't involved in any of the music I was doing, just being such good friends with him and him being that prolific raises my output up somehow. Does that make sense? Like if he wasn't in my orbit, I'd almost do nothing. But by trying to sort of maybe meet him somewhere <laughs> like on his on his output level or something like it just it gives me enough inspiration or motivation or excitement about doing it that i put in a little bit more effort to do that and um it's especially true when we work on stuff together like it's just it gives me like a impetus or a deadline or a something just to like hey let's just you know get this done um and it's really neat to see i feel like we've worked on a a bunch of different projects with a bunch of different names and a bunch of different sounds. Um, and the, the latest thing we're working on is, uh, some, some hip hop. So we're talking Which, publicly about that. Know. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. News broken on LPLP. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of LPLP, I do think we're coming up on, uh, on, uh, the, the, probably the the end of the listeners uh yeah yeah we we should wrap it up but Corey, uh, that means a lot i mean the whole honestly the whole reason for buying the gear it wasn't i don't know if i'd have done it only for myself right i loved the songs you were writing i loved playing drums for you rob i loved your song so much and joining you know touring with the shaft or you know joining in on drums or whatever and other people you know other people too i loved what um Scott's creativity, you know, and what blame the game. And I loved what my friends were doing so much that I wanted to document it. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I bought the gear for myself and then, Oh, there's, there's other people's music on the side or it was all one in my mind that we were doing something together, even in different bands and different sounds and things. And, and I wanted, I wanted to capture all of it. Um, but any any final well, I, thought? I, I will say. Go ahead. I, I will say, all of that stuff we did together would be a very dim memory today, mm -hmm. if we didn't have that documentary record that you created, which does include this very excellent first effort from band culture. Word. So if you're out there and you're still listening, if you make music, record it somehow. Use an app. You know, use your phone. Use whatever you can get your hands on and, and just put stuff down because you uh, even if you think you won't care about it, you will care about it. And it's worth whatever music you're making. 
it's worth documenting. So document it. You will treasure it forever. You will treasure it forever. Yeah, it's like when you do some sit-ups, no shirts, but sit-ups with bros, you wish you took a photo. I really do think, though, that, like, I think about the times that I spent with friends and would have killed for a photo or a video of something like that 10 or 15 years later. Like, I didn't think it mattered at the time, but, like, if I had some more documentation of college or, like, band practice with Shacker or the recording process or anything like that, I would flip. So, um, I think that's a really good final thought. Uh, and just that this hip-hop shit is so raw dog. <laughs> it's pretty great. We'll we'll have to talk about it once it's done. It's a ways away, but... Yeah, we uh, can bleep all that out if you pretty, want. I it's might, pretty cool. Might be too fucking raw. <laughs> Shacker, pardon my pretension, but isn't it Blackbeard's birthday? You can hear it on Bandcamp, MrFuriousRecords.Bandcamp.com, all your major streaming platforms. And if you like it, uh, or if you don't, there's two other uh, Shacker records also on MrFuriousRecords.Bandcamp.com and all the major streaming platforms that you can check out that you might like more or less. Either way, it's been the Long Play Listening Party. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, guys. See ya!